Hi, welcome to Shoe Speak HR. I've got Amy Leach uh, and Amy Anderson with myself, Andy Graham, today. Hi, Amy Leach. Hi, Andy. You okay? I'm good. I'm good. Amy Anderson, you okay? I'm good. It feels like ages since I've talked with you two on a podcast. <laughs> what are we going to discuss today? Well, we've we've decided in our infinite wisdom to have back to basics refreshers on, on various topics. So we're going to do a number of mini topics. Um, we've identified some issues. Um, if any of the listeners want to put forward other um, issues elements they have challenges with things they want to know more about then you know kind of do feel free to get in touch with us and let us know what they are um you know the the usual email address is probably best shoespeakhr at shoesmiths.co.uk um but today we're going to look at onboarding i guess we're talking about back to basics you know it's great for for newbies in the world of hr um but also probably a really good reminder for more experienced hr personnel um, you know, kind of to to think about the onboarding issues. I'm I'm always conscious when you know, kind of people move up the ranks in HR and, and kind of then move organisations, depending on where they've been and how sophisticated the the organisation that they work for is. Individuals can suddenly find themselves back having to do the basics and, and being a bit alarmed. So, like I say, good for everybody to to catch up on this, but. Um, Amy Anderson, do you want to start us off with the process in terms of what legal or practical issue um, you would consider is high on the high on the agenda in terms of a recruitment process? I suppose the main one of the main legal issues, anyway, in in, in a recruitment process is the potential for there to be discrimination, and that's certainly something that all employers need to be aware of when they are recruiting new members of staff. I think, obviously, there's. There's discrimination, which I suspect most people now know they should be doing is is things like asking asking women what their intentions are, are they are they going to have children, etc. I think most people now know to steer away from obviously discriminatory comments in the recruitment process because obviously they are discriminatory. But um, I think it's the slightly less obvious instances of discrimination that employers need to be careful with. So making sure that their recruitment processes don't indirectly or inadvertently discriminate against potential candidates. So that might be, I've had um, businesses inquire previously about things like, oh, um, we need they need to have a driving license. And you say, well, why do they need to have a driving license for this particular role? And actually when you dig down into it, it's not actually a requirement of the job they're not say a hgv driver so potentially there that is a discriminator are you therefore going to be indirectly discriminating against people with certain health conditions you can't have driving license etc um, and then it's other things as well um i was at a, a talk the the other day about um what psychometric tests as well and whether whether or not there's potentially indirect discrimination there for for um candidates who are neurodivergent who aren't as able to to complete psychometric tests as as other employees so i think there's a lot to be aware of there and for employers to to bear in mind when looking at their recruitment process and making sure that their recruitment processes are accessible for all as possible yeah i think that's some really good advice amy and and, and sometimes those things that keeping records get lost a little bit um when people are busily trying to recruit so um yeah very important that as ever we uh we lawyers refer to the, the paper trail and, and having that Evidence. No, you are right. I have I have had employment tribunal claims where it's why did you give this person the job, and 
the person who gave them the job was like, well, it was like however many months, so I can't really remember, but then there isn't the paper trail. And it's then easy for somebody to say, well, there was a discriminatory reason for not getting the job. And there's no, like you say, no paper trail to evidence that the non-discriminatory reason why they didn't get the job was all these different reasons. And we've, we've got a standard form that we use for all our candidates. We ask them all the same questions and we've got it all nicely and nicely noted down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Amy Leach, what about right to work? That's all high on the agenda when, when people are being onboarded. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and quite a minefield as well, I think, for many employers at times um, and sometimes forgotten as well, which hopefully doesn't happen in um, the majority of cases. But I suppose, yeah, employers have an obligation and they need to check that a job ab- applicant is legally allowed to work um, for them in the UK before they employ them. And that's, I think, one of the key points as well, um, which I'll come on to in terms of when you should be carrying out this check in the recruitment process. So I suppose the consequence, if you as an employer are found to be employing um, migrant workers and they're working for you illegally, um, then you could, as an employer, face uh, civil fines and they can actually be up to £20,000 for each illegal worker. So quite pricey if you've got a few people um, in your business who are working illegally. Um, And also, again, more seriously, I should probably say criminal liability um, is a possibility. So there's a maximum prison sentence of five years um, or an unlimited fine or both. Um, But not to kind of, I suppose, scare employers necessarily by saying that that criminal liability will only arise where the employer is knowingly or has reasonable cause to believe that someone working for them is an illegal worker. So there has to be some level of knowledge or um, I suppose a reasonable cause to believe that they sh- they are an illegal worker there. Um, I suppose as well, if you're not carrying out right to work checks um, and it does turn out that um, you employ somebody and they are an illegal worker and the Home Office find out, it could be if you have a sponsor license as well that actually that's impacted um, because the Home Office could potentially suspend it and they could remove it altogether from you or they could downgrade it and that will impact then if you're sponsoring any other um, non-UK uh, workers, that might mean they lose their right to work and um, obviously you lose people in the workforce and it all gets a bit complicated. So um, basically, I suppose my kind of point here is that as an employer, you should be carrying out your right to work checks as part of the recruitment process. Um, if you carry them out correctly um, before the employee starts their employment with you, then you will have basically a statutory excuse, which is an, a defence basically in law against any civil penalties Um, and it just means that basically if down the line there is an issue and the Home Office come and investigate and it does potentially look like you might have an illegal worker, if you've carried out that check correctly during the recruitment process then you have some form of protection there basically. Um, So I think it's just with the consequences, obviously both civil and criminal, employers should just be quite diligent, um, make sure it's built into their recruitment process that they need to carry out these checks. Um, I suppose, understand what type of check they need to carry out depending on the nationality of the um, applicant in front of them. And again, we normally recommend carrying them out at the interview process or just after if obviously you um, have chosen the candidate that you want, you would then as part of sending out the offer and everything to them, um, ask for their right to work documentation and start processing that check way before they even kind of step into that first day of employment. So there's no risk then of um, them starting employment without you knowing basically if they have the right to work in the UK. So I think quite an important area um, and definitely something that should be factored into um, the onboarding process. And I think we should say as well, Amy, I think you've done fantastically well to condense that topic um, into 
a couple of minutes because it, it certainly is a, a more in-depth area than that. I know we've done podcasts previously on right-to-work checks um, and, and I dare say we, we will do them again as and when those requirements change. It's certainly something to keep in mind and, and, and actually you, you touched upon what I would flag as well as, as being kind of an issue that often rears its ugly head when when onboarding um, and that's withdrawing offers of employment and that may may well be for um, you know kind of people not to provide documentation to to evidence that they can work in the UK um, so you know kind of how how do employers go about doing that well again as you as you kind of touched upon it, any any offer letter should make it clear that the offer is subject to the conditions that the employer requires um you know kind of one compulsory condition is is evidence in the right to work uh, but there may well be other things organizations want um references um you know kind of proof of qualifications all those kind of good stuff uh, that that individuals often need to produce um so the offer letter should say that because and and then that gives an employer an opportunity to withdraw that offer if such conditions are not met uh, within the required time scale. Um, you know, because ultimately, if you withdraw an offer, and that could be for any reason, you know, kind of you you could get information about the individual, or issues could come to light that that cause concern, or or actually, the business you know kind of may suddenly change and then there is no longer a need for that particular individual to to undertake the role um but inevitably when you are withdrawing any offers you will have a disgruntled disappointed individual on your hands um so they may as amy says look to point to an act of amy anderson i should say point to an act of discrimination um as to the the reason for the withdrawal um and and if if they can evidence that it that it is discriminatory then then they would have a claim um, they may also have a breach of contract claim um, if they've already accepted the offer. Um, so if the offer is withdrawn before it's been accepted, then that's fine. Um, you know, the employer won't be subject to any um, breach of contract claims. But if the claim has actually been accepted, um, then then we're in a different ballpark um, and there will be questions about the notice um, as to what, if any, notice the individual is entitled to. Kind of niche area in this uh, particular issue is, well, what is that notice period? Is it the notice period that would be required under the probationary provisions of a contract? Um, and that can be the case and is often the case that any employer would want because that's a smaller notice period. Or is it the fuller notice period that that's kind of set out in the contract for once an individual gets out of the probationary period? And the key to that is the wording of the contract as to, you know, kind of the probationary. So if somebody is in the probationary period, the suggestion is that they are, they've started, they're in the probationary period. Whereas if they're not in the probationary period, it could be argued that they're entitled to the longer period of notice. Um, so it's worth just casting an eye on what your probationary provisions say and, and whether that captures the time before somebody starts as well. Um, but you know, like I say, withdrawing can can suddenly become at a cost, and and individuals are more likely to litigate in this area than any other because they have no loyalty to the business. They may feel aggrieved. They may have handed their notice in at their existing employer, and therefore have a job going forwards. Um, so it is something that you need to carefully check. You need to make sure that you have the proper conditions. 
um, to allow you to withdraw an offer if if they are not met. Um, and then at the relevant time, you do really need to give consideration to to what has happened and what has changed um, and, and, and have the evidence to be able to support that. So yeah, we, we refer to this topic as being back to basics. And then I think we've kind of done a whistle-stop tour through some quite complex areas. But I, I guess what it should do is serve as a reminder to the listeners that actually, yes, we're calling it back to basics. And yes, it is a, fresh, a refresher and people are probably well aware of their obligations. Um, but there are pitfalls if you don't get it right. So it's worth just paying attention and making sure, you know, kind of when going through the onboarding process that, that you've got it mapped out and you, you're able to do, to do what you need to do to either get the individual on board or to, to make sure they don't get on board, uh, as the case may be. But, um, so what's, what's our next topic on back to basics, um, well, we're going to try and work through the life cycle of an employment relationship. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about employment contracts in, in the next episode. So hopefully you'll all join us then. Uh, but like I said at the top of the podcast, if you've got any subjects at all that you want us to just go back to basics on and, and give you a bit of a refresher, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. Um, we always enjoy receiving your feedback. Um, as ever, best spot is to email us shoespeakhr at shoesmiths.co.uk thanks Amy's speak soon thanks bye